0: Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks from the Sydney Opera House. Welcome to the James Jones Sutherland Theatre at the Sydney Opera House. For today's discussion on Australian food, I'd like to begin by acknowledging that we're on the site of one of the earliest middens representing the traditional food culture of Australia back to the earliest times. I'd also like to acknowledge that we meet on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to their elders, past and present. We all in Australia know Bill Granger. When I say his name, you probably already have an image of him in your mind, and perhaps it's an image of scrambled eggs. I'd like to introduce Bill today, however, in the words of others. Apologies in advance, it's a fairly long introduction, but people have said an awful lot about him. Nearly 20 years ago, the New York Times wrote about Bill's scrambled eggs, that they would stack up against all comers, including the likes of Julia Child or Michel Girard, one of the founding fathers of French Nouvelle Cuisine. In 2009, the Sydney Morning Herald's Terry Durack said, every city has a cafe that is the poster child for the inner city, the city's inner spirit, and for Sydney, its bills. UK's Telegraph magazine called him the king of breakfast, and not as a metaphor. They capitalised the K and King, and that's in a country that awfully knows an awful lot about monarchies. In 2016 Condé Nast wrote that Bill launched a whole new style of eating in Australia. The New Yorker said that Bill Granger is the restaurateur most responsible for the Australian cafe's global reach. But I think in 2019 the New York Times perhaps said it most simply. It said Bill Granger reinvented the image of Australian food as seen from abroad. Bill's eponymous cafe brought us corn fritters, ricotta hotcakes, honeycomb butter, of course, those scrambled eggs, and one dish that has now become perhaps even more ubiquitous. And for that, I want to take you back to 1993. It's a fair while ago. Rodney King riots were going in Los Angeles. Sleepless in Seattle was the top of the global box office. Monica Sellers had been stabbed by a spectator in Hamburg. Mandela and De Clark dismantled apartheid in South Africa, and they won the Nobel Peace Prize. Yet, something perhaps not quite as momentous but equally interesting was happening just a few kilometres away from here in Sydney's Darlinghurst. The man on my left, Bill Granger, put avocado toast on the menu at Bill's. Bill, welcome to the Sydney Opera House. Oh, thank you. In your new book, Australian Food, you talk about how your kids sometimes roll their eyes when people say that you invented avo- avocado toast. But did you? I don't like the
1: word invented. I think
0: um, <laughs> there might be a lot of people in Mexico who
1: might um, <laughs> put yeah, avocado on bread before me. But I think it Bill's it popularised the idea of going out for breakfast and having it. And I think, you know, it was an upgrade for me and Vegemite toast, right. which I love being an Australian, and <laughs> having that savoury breakfast.
0: You know, avocado toast has certainly had a moment in the, mm. in the 30-odd years since, uh, since that time. But before we get to that, let's talk about the empire. Well, let's talk about Bill's, not just the man, but also the, the, would you call it an empire?
1: No, it's, I don't know. They're just, <laughs> my restaurants, they're home. It's quite hard <laughs> with the restaurants every time you walk in. And I was in um, the Darlinghurst restaurant this morning early before we opened. And they're also personal. They're like an extension. They're like rooms in my house. So yeah.
0: How, how, many, how many rooms are in that house right now? Oh. 19 19 yes 19. spread across australia japan hawaii York, hawaii yeah and london and seoul that's incredible yeah and, and would you i would say perhaps not unfairly that you're you you came to becoming a restaurateur through a fairly unconventional path Oh, absolutely. I,
1: yeah, I had no thought of going to the restaurant business. My family were shopkeepers. Um, I was born behind a butcher shop. My father had his first butcher shop, I think at 22 or 3. And we lived behind there. And I remember the sawdust on the floor. Um, and shopkeeping was very much a part of my life. My grandfather had butcher shops, and I'd walk in, and I always remember I loved the social nature of it, the camaraderie with the butchers that have a chat. You know, there would always be silly jokes. Butchers have a sort of secret language. <laughs> <laughs> and then the customers coming in. And I went to art school yeah. thinking I'd wanted to do something creative. I started architecture in Melbourne. Um, it was too disciplined for me. I was just too structured. It wasn't me. And then I went and studied art in Sydney. I moved to Sydney and studied art and started working in a restaurant part-time. And that was it. I fell in love with the restaurant
0: business. How, did, how do you then make... You know, I'm sure there, there is a lot of uh, art students out there that don't make the leap from art student mm. to restaurateur. Well, How does that spark hit you? You know, you, you walk into Darlinghurst and you go, that's the building we're going to open, what will become one of the most, oh, most iconic cafes in the world. It
1: definitely wasn't the building I went like that. It was the only building I could get. <laughs> I'd tried... Uh, site in Ultimo, I tried to get near the ABC headquarters was about to move down there and then I'd tried one in Bondi and no one would rent me a space because I was so young and the site we eventually got or I eventually got was in Darlinghurst and the man who owned it bought this building he was got to set his girlfriend up in a little cafe in there and they'd broken up luckily for me and it'd been empty for a year and I got it for $250 a week because he was desperate. Wow. Yeah and that's yeah that's the only way (laughs) yeah so that didn't last too long but it was a great way to start
0: talk about Australian cafe culture hmm. a little bit because i don't think we can downplay just how extraordinary the influence of bills hmm. and other restaurants like it has been around the world you know for years we've been talking back and forth about Australian food you know what what is Australian food what does it represent and for all that time that we've been having this discussion you've been opening restaurants around yeah. the world on the basis that they are serving Australian food you know you can go to New York, Los Angeles, Tokyo, these days, young people that go abroad from Australia are going abroad to open cafes mm. to serve flat whites. If you, if you go to China and order a flat white, you order a au bai, which means Australian white. Mm. You know, a lot of that is due to, to Jackie Yun and, and the, the Wagas chain over there. Do you think Bill's was one of the first Australian cafes? I
1: think so. When you say Australian cafe, definitely Australian. When I grew up, we always went to Pellegrini's mm. in Melbourne and in Fitzroy Street there was... Um, we used to go to um, a restaurant there. But being in Melbourne was that Australian, that Italian coffee.
0: We went for Italian coffee. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I grew, came from, grew up in Adelaide and yeah. it's the same. Every cafe you went to was a Bongiorno, a Mondialia, a Paisano, Rosati, D'Estazio, mm. these kind of Italian names. And, and from that Italian cafe culture that I think was probably a little bit stronger in places like Adelaide and Melbourne. Yeah. You came up to Sydney and you did something different. I did something different. There was Coluzzi here, and I think every city had one of
1: those great Italian cafes, you know, Bar Italia in Soho in London, you know, and there was, you know, another great one in um, New York. But those classic Italian cafes, I moved to Sydney and I fell in love with the light, because coming from Melbourne, Melbourne is really European-focused. You know, it's the Paris end of Collins Street. You wanted to be European and worldly, but coming to Sydney, I fell in love with the light and the uh, just the external nature of the city and it seduced me and the colours. And I wanted to do a restaurant. I was obsessed with design still because I wanted to do architecture and it was the early 90s and it was minimalism. To me, you know, people like John Pearson and Claudio Silverstone and Donald Judd were all the artists and architects I was really inspired by. So I just wanted to do something very simple and very clean. I didn't even think of making it Australian. I just wanted to make it what I liked, and the designed restaurants. Design restaurants were a new thing in the early 90s. You know, I think Neil Perry had the first design restaurant with Rockpool. But apart from that, there wasn't a lot. So I wanted to bring design with
0: food. It, it, it's kind of groundbreaking. You know, I, I don't know. Oh, thank you. <laughs> be, be too effusive, but I probably should be. But it's at that vanguard where you've gone from... This idea of what a cafe should be mm. it was very much you know take something from Italy and you put it into uh, you know a street in Melbourne or Sydney or, or or Adelaide and then all of a sudden you know this restaurant that you've created appears. What was what was at the front of your mind? Was it just the design first and, and creating an aesthetic and creating, I guess a. a a feeling or a moment around it, or was it about, you know, we need to find somewhere that's going to sell some really nice eggs? No, never about business, and I think that's the thing with restaurants. I think
1: you could never think, I mean, no one in the restaurant business will tell you you should go into the restaurant business wanting to make money, because it's not probably the best way to start. You go in there because I, I wanted to go in there to express myself, you know, so whether it was expressing myself in art, I really felt the desire to creatively express what I loved, and that was with food and interior design and just the whole package. I and mean, creating an environment. I love environments, you know, and that's what I love about... I've always loved restaurants. Growing up from Melbourne, you know, I had my 18th birthday at Stephanie's. You know, I'd picked which restaurant I wanted to go to. I was obsessed by the, the glamour and the way they made you feel. So it was, not, it was just about expressing myself to do a
0: great creative job. Do you think that that aesthetic has been... Um the secret to your success? Because, you know, when I think mm. of Bill Granger's food, I don't picture a chef under fluoro lights at the back of a windowless kitchen. I picture a plate of your food on blonde wood by a window yeah. uh, and there's a colour scheme to it. You know, there's, there's yellows, there's, there's bright whites, you know, there's, there's, there's a look to your food that came in 25 years before Instagram.
1: Yes, and I, I often think now because... I try to be better at Instagram. I'm not so great at it. But I often think we used to always joke, Michelle, who was my, the first chef and I, who said, oh, where's Vogue when you want them? We'd be playing with some food and everything. She was an ex-art student as well. And you'd be rolling out pastry or, you know, slicing fresh peaches or doing something. Because food, for me, when I cook, it's the process of it. I love, I love the visual of food. So whether it's, you know, when you go to a market and you see something beautiful and you bring it home and you put it on your bench, you arrange it in your fridge. I love that whole... Process the visual,
0: yeah, the visuals of food from the yeah from the start to the finish. Let's let's go back to avocado toast for a second here, and only because I think that it's it's really useful to see the cultural context of of foods, you know. And if you were to deconstruct avocado toast, I think it illustrates an awful lot about the moment in 1993 when you went from a a pre-avocado toast Australia to a post-avocado toast <laughs> <laughs> Australia. But y- 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 you've got avocado, and immediately that kind of says year-round availability. We've got Australia, Australian avocados are produced year-round. We've got uh, a middle-class population that is able to afford them because they're not mm. the cheapest things in the world. Uh, we have sourdough. You know, this yeah. is another big... De- we, we talk about sourdough. If you go to a cafe that doesn't have sourdough now... Uh, it's the outlier, but back in 1993, you having something that wasn't focaccia oh. was the outlier.
1: And I deliberately wanted to do no focaccia because that's <laughs> all you could get at, you know, Barca Luzzi or Tropicano was focaccia.
0: You, 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 you sure you weren't going to do an avocado toast with sun-dried tomatoes and chicken on a focaccia? I oh, know, <laughs> definitely in not Yeah, no. <laughs> and I'm
1: a sun-dried tomato kid. I had to go to <laughs> Belmain to get the bread. There was one great French bakery then, and I had to beg her, and she was this wonderful... Miriam, I think her name was, and she was a wonderful French baker, but she was really tough and strict about not delivering. So I had to beg her, and she finally
0: delivered. So that's how we got <laughs> the bread, because it was the most important thing. And then on your avocado toast, you've got chilli flakes as well, and there's very few places in the Anglosphere where you can do that literally outside of Sydney. You know, if you were doing avocado toast in England, for example, it wouldn't work because they don't have year-round production of avocados, et cetera, et cetera, you wouldn't put chili flakes on it, but you would do that Mm. in Sydney.
1: Yeah, and I don't think I would have even done it in Melbourne Mm. because for me coming to Sydney and seeing, you know, going to, in those days, Barbecue King late or Golden Century or Thai food in the early 90s and late 80s really started to take off. And I think just that clarity of Sydney food and the spice really made sense here.
0: The next part of the avocado choice I'd like to talk about is the essentially the gap in the market. Yeah. You know, you've got brunch. You, For brunch to exist, you need to have firstly people who have the time to have it. So mm. generally, somewhere, somewhere like Darlinghurst, you've got young families or couples or singles who, for whom going out for breakfast at 9 o'clock is too early, probably can't wait for a 12, one o'clock lunch. You know, the, it's a dish that kind of suits the exact location of that very first build. Yeah,
1: in the early 90s in Sydney, it's a very different city now, Sydney was quite bohemian, especially in Darlinghurst. It was still... I went to city art and then, you know, did classes at the National Art School, and there was lots of creativity, and it was a very artistic, creative area. So we had, you know, Baz Luhrmann at the time had his... Um, Studios up the road, or his offices up the road. There was just great people around. So, lots of creatives who didn't have to work a nine to five, who'd be freelance designers, all of those people. They were the. And in a way, the, the original idea of people working remotely, yeah, mm. on locations, different times, they could come in and use it as their office, as their meeting space. There
0: wasn't a nightclub. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, there, there's also this idea of casualness around mm. it. You know, it's not. A fussy dish. None of the food that you were serving at Bill's back at that stage and and, uh, still serving today is particularly fussy. It is things that people want to eat. Avocado on toast, scrambled eggs. How different was that in 1993 to the idea of what a restaurant should be?
1: It's quite interesting. Casualness was something that came when I moved to Sydney. I remember coming up for the weekend I was 18 or 19 and coming from Melbourne, you know, Melbourne is And I'd worked at a department store called George's in Melbourne and Melbourne people really prided themselves on their fashion and their look and I came up in a shirt and a pair of trousers and someone said, you can tell you're not from Sydney. And I think within, <laughs> in moving to Sydney, I think within six months, all I wore were white T-shirts. <laughs> And I remember going to America on a big trip to look around, and I bought packs of white Hanes T-shirts for about $3 each (laughs) and just lived in those. And I think Sydney was the casualness, and that felt quite Australian. You know, Sydney, even though everyone thought of the beaches and um, doing it, it was pre-surf culture, really. There wasn't a lot of that big noise around surf culture for the city. Um, Dare Jennings had Mambo down the road, so he was starting to do things in the early 90s. But it wasn't really a big thing, but I just felt it's a temperature. It's a, You know, it's the sultriness of Sydney makes it casual but also glamorous. And it was a time of, you know, great architects doing very
0: simple interiors. And I think we'd all just, our eyes changed. Do you think you, you kind of had an advantage on that? You know, I, I often think that one of the big advantages of multiculturalism is that you get people coming and seeing what your place is like firsthand. You know, you, hmm. and you're, you're, you're kind of a multicultural import from Melbourne to Sydney. You came to Sydney with a Melbourne mentality and saw so you, you could easily see those differences between the two oh, places. completely. And absolutely want to go down now. There's less of a difference now,
1: I think, just because of everywhere in the world, there's less of a difference. But it still has Sydney, you know, you get up early. I'm shocked when I'm at Bondo Beach at 6am. It's like, whoa, where are all these people from? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Back to the avocado toast. I think the genius of your avocado toast was you took something that was very, very simple, avocado toast, and then you applied something to it that was, frankly, impossible for the average person, which is a poached egg. Nobody yes. in Australia knows how to poach an egg. <laughs> yeah. and so yeah, if you <laughs> serve avocado toast without a poached egg, everyone's like, I'm not paying $12 for that, $16 for that, $25 for that, however much avocado toast is these days. But you put a poached egg on it and all of a sudden it's brunch.
1: Mm. And that's, the poached egg came around because I only ever did scrambled eggs at the start. And the avocado toast, to be honest, didn't take off. I mean, we've been in business 28 years. (laughs) Didn't take off for about 15 years. It was only in the late 90s. Suddenly it's like, why is this selling? And the poached eggs were for me to get that extra protein hit. I love eggs. Mm. And it was just to have that extra bit of protein to keep you going.
0: And that's that's how that happened. I I think the timing of it's quite... Interesting as well. You know, we're we, you're looking at a, a shift away from processed food. People becoming more interested in, in their the, their food from a health perspective. Mm. Which, to be honest, in the 80s, there probably wasn't a huge amount of. No, uh, certainly not uh, scientifically driven. Probably more marketing driven in that respect. People are starting to understand the difference between good fats and not so good fats mm. and that kind of thing. How do you get it right? How do you get something like that right? Is there a, a the, formula for it? For the, to make a dish. Yeah, it's to, 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 to get a dish that is going to, not so much one particular dish, but the same with the hotcakes, the same with the scrambled eggs. How do you get that to resonate with an audience? If you were serving just Darlinghurst, yes. for example, you can know everybody who walks into the your shop by their first name. How do you get a dish to resonate that is going to work in inner city Sydney, is going to work in Tokyo, is going to work in New York, is going to work in London?
1: Well, it's interesting. I think with signature dishes, and they're often, I think you ask anyone, they didn't know they were going to be signature dish when they (laughs) started. They just happened and suddenly it's your customers who tell you what they love. And the great thing about having a restaurant in Sydney at that time was customers were really open. You know, I think if I had been in London or New York, people with traditional, especially cities with histories of you know, long rest, you know restaurants, or even if I was in Italy or Paris. Um, customers here will try anything. They love things being new. And people often say that about Sydney, it's great, you know, you get the newest, the latest and the greatest, and then we don't get the long-term things. But the flip side of that is it really encourages creativity. Mm. You can try and you can push and do different things. Um, I think with a signature dish, you've just got to cook what you like. I mean, for me, it starts what I want to eat myself. And the avocado toast was, for me, putting avocado. It was crushed avocado because I'd stick it on toast. I'd be wanting to eat quickly. I'd do that. And that's, yeah, is what I wanted to eat. And I think the health thing is very Sydney. It's the outdoors. It's not wearing, you know, it's
0: having a T-shirt on. You can't no. cover yourself up as much. <laughs> so you've got to be a bit health conscious. I have a slight confession. When Bills opened in Tokyo, I think it was yeah. in Kamakura? Yes. Um... I was living in Japan at the time and huh? we went down there as a uh, sort of a group of Japanese friends and also some Aussie expats that I was uh, and still am, am friends with. We went down there and my, my girlfriend at the time, we went for dinner actually, yeah. and uh, my girlfriend at the time had scrambled eggs for dinner because she, <laughs> she, I was like, you sure you don't want something else? And she's like, no, I'm having the best scrambled eggs in the world at bills, you know. What does that make you think of to think that there is, you know, a 20-something person in Japan who is thinking that, This man makes the best scrambled eggs in the entire world. And there's not one person. That is, there are millions and millions of people around the world who will look at something as simple as scrambled eggs that that many people around the world eat every single day and know that they they view you as making the best version of that.
1: It's pretty wild. I think when we first went to Japan, and I'd lived in Japan when I was um, a student. I went there for a bit of a gap year and hung around and loved it. And then I worked for a couple of years just going back and forth, doing pop-ups, and finally... And I kept on being asked the question, what is Australian food? Mm. Which is a really big question. And, you know, you can say, well, it's sort of like California. It's a mix from everywhere. You know, you really think of it. But part of me realised it's very much about the country, the space. And Kamakura, where the first restaurant was, you mentioned, is by the beach. And you don't think of Japan as having this great sort of beautiful coastline, which, of course, it does Mm. because it's an island. And to me, I went down there, I felt instantly at home. I'd said these sort of hipped-out creatives, young families, everyone was much more relaxed, very different to Tokyo. And I thought, this is where I want to cook. This is the where I want to cook what I love. And I got in there, and that's how it started there. And that's I think when you talked about you think of not just the food, you think of the colours, the light. For me as well, I've got to be in an environment to cook. Yeah, I like to be barefoot in the kitchen be surrounded by family. Of course, not always on a beach. You know, <laughs> I live in London. But I think that idea of communicating Australian food is very much
0: about the country and the location. Yeah, let's, let's talk about Australian food because that's the title of your new book. Um, you've gone from your first book being Sydney Food yeah. to the newest one being Australian food. And, and it, in many ways, there, is, there are quite a few crossover recipes from that very mm. first book into the new one that that now under the, under the title of, of Classics. In a lot of ways, I think your idea of Sydney food has become Australian food with a few other things. But if you were not Australian and you were on the outside looking in, you see that the book is full of things like feta and olive oil and yuzu and exo sauce, soba noodles and pasta and even a version of uh, kha cha, the, the Vietnamese fish and dill dish from yeah. Hanoi. You've got poke bowls and miso and kimchi, you know, what is Australian food? I'm sorry to ask that as an open ended yeah. question.
1: I think Australian food is, well, I mean, it's a mismatch of food around the world, but we definitely take foods and I think we take favourite foods. It's because of our, you know, every Australian when they finish school saves up to travel. I used to go out while I was working and saving for my $2,000 ticket when I was 18 and sit at Tullamarine Airport with friends and sit at the bar looking at the planes, just <laughs> dreaming of getting out. And I think that idea of wanting, and it's, we love to travel, and we're very outward-looking in Australia. I think, you know, we're always trying to understand our place in the world. You know, you often hear about, you know, what's happening in the States or the UK or, you know, Japan, but what's happening here? And we, I think food has been a really important part of our identity. It has become a very important part of our identity. You know, people travelling and coming back and saying, the food's not as good as here, I can't get a coffee. You know, it used to be the thing, now you can. But, you know, 10 or 15 years ago... But I think people want to travel, and they bring that food back. And you've got people who travel with Australian itinerary and stay. You know, up in Byron Bay, I've been um, staying for a couple of weeks. There's so many Japanese who have been travelling and love it. And you know, I was ch- talking to a couple, and they've got a great Japanese breakfast tour at Byron Bay Markets, and they're there and they're raising their kids, and it's you know large, huge lines. And I think. The idea of Australian food is it's always evolving. I think that's its biggest thing. It's changing. You can't think of the one Australian dish. When I was young, you might think of, you know, a roast lamb and then, you know, maybe a spaghetti bolognese. But you know, it's changed and much more than I think any of us could ever imagine how fast it would change. Pasta used to be exotic. <laughs> My father still won't eat garlic. Really? Yeah. Really.
0: And yet, you know, now you're writing a book with the uh that's called Australian food and it's got dishes in it like black sticky rice with coconut milk and papaya. You know, you would say that that would be a dish that would be quite at home in a book on Thai food. Yeah, absolutely. But you can go eat it in
1: Sydney. Like I've just been, you know, my daughter now has gone and got cream puffs in Chinatown. We had a Japanese lunch. Um, They'll go and get bubble tea. But anything you want in any city in Australia, you can go and get. I mean, you can go to the supermarkets and buy any ingredient, any regional centre. I used to drive up from Melbourne and Sydney when I was nineteen. I'd stop at a cafe on the way, and they'd have those great espresso machines. and think, you know, I want a coffee, so I think I'll oh, stop and get there. I remember stopping and uh, putting the machine on, steaming the milk, then getting a tin of the, no, uh, an espresso or whatever, and opening <laughs> up the tin, doing some instant coffee, and pouring in the boiled milk. <laughs> but of course, now you go to anywhere and you can get a decent coffee.
0: Yeah, Australian cafe culture has become the export of yes. Australian culture and cuisine abroad. You know, mm. this is what we're known for now. We yes. are known for coffee. We are known for avocado toast and scrambled eggs and and, uh, and sourdough. You yeah. know, is that surprising? You know, we, we often think that maybe Australia should have been fish and chips or meat pies or something like that going overseas yeah. or Vegemite. Yeah. But in the end it's become... Toast and, uh, yeah, yeah. toast and... Yeah, avocado toast and a flat white. It's funny, isn't it? We
1: always, you know, we thought meat pies were something you... But, of course, you know, pies are from somewhere else, from the UK. But I think it's interesting, opening a cafe, and we've exported, like, you know, Italians with pizzerias or Chinese with, you know, barbecue restaurants. We've exported a lot of people. And what is so good about it is that non-trained people can do it. So you'll often people, find people who own cafes have had a life change. I opened. I'd opened. never really worked in a restaurant. I worked in one cafe and I opened up and I could make coffee, I could make a sandwich, so I sort of winged it and I was a decent home cook. <laughs> and that's how I did it. And I think with most cafes, people, there's not a lot of opportunities now. People used to have a lot of small businesses, a lot more small businesses. Mm. But cafes are still you know, a great small business. They're a great thing you can open without a ridiculous amount of money, without a ridiculous amount of training. I think with restaurants, everyone thinks they can do every part of it. You wouldn't think, I can go make a speedster bike, I I know how to do it. But everyone looks at a restaurant and thinks, I can make coffee, they can cook, they can serve people, (laughs) I can do all of that.
0: (laughs) Do you consider yourself a chef?
1: No, definitely not a chef. Um, I think of chefs as... I mean, I wouldn't insult chefs with saying I'm a chef. (laughs) I'm definitely a home cook. I was a good home cook and I loved cooking. I was... I cooked for my family, I had a you know, a broken, slightly dysfunctional family like a lot of people. And I found cooking was definitely a way of pulling in the family or creating some focus or some connection Mm. um, with food. So I cook very much for taste and because I like it. I
0: like to eat. I think in Australia we've in some ways become a little bit, no, not just Australia, The, the Anglosphere in the world generally has become a lot more concerned with, chefs and, and mm. chef culture and, in some, in some cases, celebrity chef culture as well. You know Even something like Michelin, or, which historically did not look at chefs at all, was only looking at individual restaurants, is now talking about chefs more than mm. talks about restaurants. And World 50 Best, obviously, is something that is, again, supposed to be about restaurants but is talking about chefs. Yet the people who you would say are the most influential when it comes to shaping the way people cook... Mm. Are cooks? If yes. We look at people like yourself, Maggie Beer, Nigella Lawson. Um, what do you think is that kind of difference between, I guess, a chef and a cook, and how does that impact how people cook at home?
1: I think when you're a chef, and I think of a chef as being very much a beautiful crafts person who's creating a dish, a dish not unlike an artist um, for self-expression. To do something because you're feeling it. One of my daughters loves cooking like that. And her cooking's not about feeding other people emotionally, it's about creating a beautiful, it's a creative expression. I think for cooks, it's, the focus is definitely about what do people want to eat. And I think maybe that's been a successful um, attitude to have in the restaurant um, that what do people want to eat? How do I make them feel good? You know, my biggest thing is in a restaurant when you put food down and when someone goes, oh, that looks amazing or I want to eat that or I take a photo, it makes people feel good. And I think cooks usually cook for an emotional, um, you know, emotional feedback. You know, maybe we're a bit more needier um, (laughs) as, you know, cooks. I think of, you know, uh, Ruth Rogerson and the River Cafe is another great cook, untrained, Mm -hmm. but is really good at making people feel welcome, even Jamie Oliver. It's really he trained for a little bit but not a long mm. time. He's definitely a cook, he approaches it because he wants to make people happy with food and I think that's probably the biggest difference.
0: Your new book is when you look at the makeup of the recipes, mm. you know you have some of the classics in there that they go back to the very beginning but what I see when I look at the lineup there is very forward with vegetables, Asian influence, Middle Eastern influence, uh, Mediterranean influences. Certainly a lot less meat than you would see in, you know, a cookbook that you might have written at the beginning. Yeah. How do you see Australian food changing? I think
1: the world's changing. It's quite interesting, you know, time and trends and things shift. And I think definitely knowing where our food comes from and the safety of it and the traceability of it will become more important. You know, I think with, you know... Bugs, we've been very lucky in Australia. We haven't had big food scares, say, in Japan with... They've had, you know, dumplings that have been poisoned or in um, the UK with um, mad cow. But I think knowing where your food's from and caring about health will become more important. And I think you're seeing that with chefs. You know, in the last 20, 30 years, writing where things are on, from on menus is, um, you know, really normal. And I think, you know, restaurants do lead the, the trends with food. They set the standard. And I think people will be more interested. I think that food needs to be delicious, but people will be wanting to, as we know the world's recipes, and let's face it, we've gone through everything, there's not a lot to discover. It's about creating your own, and what I try to do is create my own versions with a very minimal, simple cupboard, because I am a simple cook, but just how to work out to get an interesting flavour with as
0: little to do with it as possible. What's at the centre of Bill's both person and restaurant, as a philosophy about food. Is it, is it about simplicity?
1: No, it's people. about community. Yeah, it's about people. So in the restaurants, um, and we have our restaurants, and that's what was very difficult with COVID, because as a restaurant person, we're very, it's quite paternal. You look after your teams and your staff, and it's a big family, and you look after your customers, and you're looking after people every day. If you don't... You're only looking after, you can't look after yourself because no one wants to go to a restaurant that's all about the owner. That's boring. It might be busy for a minute, but it doesn't last. So for me, that's really important. At home, it for me creates a balance for the family. Um, well, a balance of base for the family. And it's a way when we're busy all coming together. And as my girls get older now, coming back and rejoining and having that time around the table. And it's connect, it's connection, is what food does for our family.
0: You, you, as I do, I, we both have three children. Hmm. Yours are a little older than mine, but um, you still cook for your family, don't you? Oh, absolutely. All
1: the cooking. Um, I do everything. My girls are really busy at school. Um, my eldest is first year university or second year now and my younger ones are in the last couple of years of school. So they're busy. You know, they're hmm. really, really busy and I want to support them as much as I can. And for me cooking, I've got to say when I come home... I try to shop, you know, every second day. I like the switching off. It's my downtime. Mm. And cooking, as everyone would know with COVID, you get better. The more you do, the quicker you get and the more, yeah, you just get a lot better at it. So I just like the time. And I like to sort of, you know, go in and make a dish. And sometimes I say, oh, I'm so tired, kids, can we get takeaway? And it's a joke in a house, no-one ever likes me get takeaway. Because <laughs> I said you've spoiled us. So, but then I'll suddenly start and Bunny, my youngest, will joke that we always know when you're tired, you'll create the craziest meals, <laughs> you know, like 20 dishes. <laughs> I sort of push into it and suddenly the creativity comes back and the energy comes back. Uh, yeah,
0: it recharges me. What, what, do you, what advice do you have for home cooks? Because... Uh, It is something that people struggle with a Mm. lot. Uh, I I think more than is necessary. You know, people are constantly, there's almost a a fear about it. You know, how can we make cooking easy? How can we avoid it? How can we make it faster? You know, what can we do to avoid cooking, (laughs) essentially? Uh, What's your advice? Well, I think you've got to stop seeing it as a chore. Mm. I think that's
1: really, really important. You've got to see it as a bit of a time for yourself. So... I think using your hands and whether it's creating anything, whether it's food, whether it's working in a garden, whatever is really important for our human condition and to de-stress. It just, you know, we're designed to make things. So doing that is really good and see it as time for yourself. Um, Put some music on and do it. If you've got younger children, you know, I used to put the kids down when they were little with a plastic tub, a couple of onions, and they'd spend hours, you know, doing that and then, you know, get them helping. My family's always involved, and I think you should make it a a thing you just do yourself. My girls clean up every night. I do all the cooking, and they'll clean up every night. And I think it's planning. If you're nervous, I can cook last minute and go out, but my wife can't. She Mm. needs to know in the morning that she's got to get groceries and things. So I think if you need to be organised, just write down what you want to cook and write a plan and make it easy and don't try and do too much. Maybe one night where you do something a bit more complicated, another night's it easy. And I think getting that balance is really important.
0: Do you make your food look like it does in the restaurant, yes. in the cafe, when you're cooking at home? Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm lucky enough to go to
1: Japan a lot and travel a lot and I love ceramics and dishes mm. and the way food and part of presenting things is putting it on a nice platter and making it look good. And I remember reading a well, one of those silly books you buy about, you know, why, um, I don't know, maybe Japanese women don't get fat or one of those stupid <laughs> things. And they were talking about the, the preparing the bento and the lunchbox and yeah. the way you show care and love by making this beautiful thing that someone opens it and sees this care. And I love that. And it's for me as well. I just love the visual. I'm a visual mm. person. I arrange things. It's the way you pile it in the plate. And I think you need to be proud of it and put it all down. We eat family style, put everything in the middle, plates. And I like when the kids notice and make, yeah, I yeah, still think I,
0: I get that buzz from it. I, I think you, m- myself, you know, lived in Japan for a long time, I, I've also, I guess, been influenced quite a lot by that Japanese minimalist type of aesthetic, particularly when it comes to food. Mm. You know, fancy plating is not really a thing. It is, it is you take something, you put it on a plate, but you put it on there in, in a, on a nice plate in a nice way yes. and you, you make the food look like you want to eat it. Um, and it can be very simple. I mm.
1: went to, you know, when I was there and I was curious how Japanese people cook. And Japanese home kitchens are t- very simple. They mm. have a little grill, they don't have ovens usually, and, a, you know, a couple of hot plates. And I went to a friend's house and he had two little kids and she'd, his wife had just, um, or Kokobo, had made some little hamburger patties they had with a bit of green salad, but some rice, some bought pickles, a bit of bought miso with, you know, bought dashi, lots of things that all. beautiful. But it was a very, very simple
0: meal, mm. but it was just presented with a lot of ritual. <laughs> This is the thing that I don't get, and please help me understand it. We live in a society where things change dramatically and quickly. Mm. Aesthetics change. You know, what people want from restaurants change. What people expect when they go out for dinner changes. What we like to wear, what Mm. we like to to buy changes so much. And yet when I look and contrast Australian food, the latest book, with Sydney food, the book that is nearly 30 years old now, Yes, there's parts that change, but I'm amazed at how much of, I guess, the aesthetic and the ethos has stayed the same. You know, this is a fairly long period of time mm. for something to have been, as it has been, constantly successful. You know, you, you were doing bare tables without fancy tablecloths and communal tables literally 20 years before New Nordic was, yeah. was making it a thing, <laughs> you know, over <laughs> in, in Europe... How do you, I, I guess, stay up to date, but also how do you make something in such a fast-changing world that is, that is seemingly so evergreen?
1: I think you've got to be... Integrity is really important and doing what you love and not looking and thinking what the market wants. I think you can't really guess a market. I think mm. you can just do what you like and hopefully there'll be enough people. Someone once told me that if you know the first hundred customers in your restaurant, you've got a business. And I think that's a really good thing to remember that if you know a hundred of your friends and extended friends and, you know, family or work colleagues that will come in and you're doing what you love, it's really, really important. And the River Cafe is another one that I go there and it feels so contemporary. It's this room which is, you know, bright blue carpet, incredibly simple. It's been the same for 32 years now, I think. Um, But it still feels contemporary because I think at the time um, it was wild and contemporary, and it's not a fashion thing. And I've seen fashions in restaurants go from minimal, then walls get dark, we get ornamentation. Um, Now restaurants are so designed they're like theatre sets. I'm sure we're going to go back to simplicity soon enough. But I think if you do what you like all the time, that's what keeps it current. But I think people know integrity. And if you've got, you know, the great European restaurants that have been there for 100 years, um, the great Italian trattorias, they don't change. You know, they're beautiful, they're comfortable, they're great interiors, but they're not necessarily fashionable. And I think you've got to be careful about making things fashionable, especially mm. in a fast-moving world with Instagram where things are just zoom around in a
0: minute. There, there is a difference, though, with Bill's because, those, you know, those great Italian and French restaurants, they stay in one place. But Bill's is something that you've managed to take... And, and transplant from Darlinghurst to Bondi to Kamakura yeah. to to London. You know how did, how much of Bill's is percentage-wise? Yeah, great food. How much is a lifestyle, and how much is I guess brand Australia or brand Bill Granger? Bill Granger. I think the big one is service and people. That's
1: probably for me the most important thing. The team. Because obviously I can't do everything. Mm. You know, I learned very early on, once I had more than one restaurant, I couldn't do it all. So it's the people. Interiors are really important because they transport you. So I want to transport people when they come. It's almost, you know, in Japan it was that idea of going into a holiday. You, You buy a life for a minute. And I think what happened in Darlinghurst, people had come and someone said to me, they've or I read something, someone had written that you have a fantasy Sydney life for a minute. And we have a lot of tourists who'd come and they'd come every morning. And I love that when I travel, I'd find a cafe and just go there every morning because it anchored me in my, and I felt like a local. Mm. And I think what I try to do is to make a space that people want to go every day. Um, I do, you know, mm. depending on where I am, I go to the restaurants every day and I sit at the bar and, and have a coffee and I just love them. I love sitting in them. Oh, what's the thing? I think the Australianness is pretty important because I think the way we are here is very different in Mm. restaurants to the rest of the world. You know, going to the UK, um, the friendliness of Australians, the fact that you can say hello to people really easily in Japan was really, really hard at the start and still difficult because we wanted to communicate with the staff to be friendly and warm. But, of course, Japanese people are used to a certain service style Mm. and a cultural things, so trying to make Japanese staff open up (laughs) to other Japanese with smiles and hellos. There's all of those cultural differences. You know, in Britain as well, you know, completely different. We'd get a lot of stuff, um, you know, originally we'd get Londoners, but they were no good, we needed Northerners who were much warmer and bigger and friendlier. And that's what I've spent a lot of time communicating. And also the non-hierarchical nature of our businesses. It's really important that, of course you need some structure, but everyone has a voice. It's really, really important in the business. And I think that's quite an Australian
0: thing. That, that, that's really interesting. We, we were talking a little bit backstage before we, we came on about, I guess, interpretation in terms of language. You know, certain language cues that, that may mean something, literally mean something quite differently the other way. But I, I'm starting to see now that when you take a, a concept that is so strong, you can't just plonk it in another place. You have to actually interpret that for the new audience. Yeah, and you've got to do it and you've got to be really sensitive where you are. I remember when we first went to Britain, I
1: heard a great uh, story and someone had said, oh, or had heard, um, you know, I invited some Australians to come and stay and they did. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I love that idea that you've just got to be really sensitive and understand what people want and listening. So I spent a lot of time, you know, I lived in Japan for a while, I spent a lot of time there opening it, understanding how to do it. And you know, it's, I have the same team who opened the first restaurant now run the business in Japan. It's fantastic. They're all the same, the same staff, and we communicate in our broken Japanese and English. <laughs> um, but I think being careful and the UK is the same, communicating that. The UK's the you know, the more the Cape Blanchard Australian, rather, you know. Um, and, you know, we have a laugh. Jason Donovan, who everyone used to joke, we used to get confused with each other. I remember him <laughs> saying to me once, I was in Otilinga the other day and someone said, Oh, mate, I love your lamb shanks. He said, I, <laughs> I think you got the wrong one. <laughs> <laughs> but just getting that right pitch right in the and that varies from neighbourhoods. You know, Bondi is a different crowd to Surrey Hills, is a different crowd to Darlinghurst, is a different,
0: yeah, it all changes. But we only have a couple of minutes left. I'd be remiss if I didn't go to what at least some people at home are going to be thinking about. How do you make a great scrambled eggs? Or yeah. hotcakes, ricotta hotcakes. Oh, you, you can hotcakes. choose. I won't make you go through both of them because we only got a couple of oh. minutes. I think ricotta hotcakes. So ricotta hotcakes...
1: Again, from the moment we had them on on a Saturday, we were only open Monday to Saturday when we started, and they were a Saturday breakfast thing. And they became so popular, we had to put them on during the week and I had to fight with Michelle, the other chef. She said, No, 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 no. And said, No, let's do it. And of course, they took off. But I think the secret with the ricotta hotcakes is to use good ricotta. We've always used pasanella from the start here. Um, they used to make it a little space in Leichhardt, it's much bigger now. Um, and in Japan, we had to, we have a farm who have to make all of our ricotta because we couldn't import enough into Japan. 90% of our sales for many years in Japan were ricotta hotcakes. Wow. Yeah. And we started apparently the Motosando pancake wars, which was crazy, <laughs> where all these pancakes and then press it, you know, say, who's doing the best pancake? But the secret is you need four eggs, a, cup, a big cup of ricotta and some milk, and you just mix it up, pink careful not to, and straight-quarters of a cup of milk, being careful not to overmix it. Then just a cup of plain flour, a bit of baking powder, and mix it up lightly, but don't mix the flour through. That's the important thing, as with any baking. You don't want to overmix it. And then, you know, four egg whites in there to lighten it up. And that's the souffle style, and folding that through. We have in Japan a whole specialist team of hotcake makers and we get applications of young Japanese girls who all they want to do is become a hotcake chef. And <laughs> we say, well you need to do other things in the kitchen. It's like no one do you want to do hotcakes? <laughs> and it's getting that line so I must say our hotcakes in Japan I think are the best anywhere because there's that idea of craft, that idea of focusing on one thing and making it better. So I think that's the secret. And also having someone else making them for you, I think, makes
0: things <laughs> always taste a lot better. You uh, just put set a light bulb off in my head because when I first moved to Japan, before Bill's was there, Japanese-style souffle pancakes weren't as big a thing now as they were then. You know, if, you're, if your daughters are rolling their eyes about you inventing avocado toast, maybe they're going to roll their eyes doubly when they hear <laughs> that perhaps you invented the souffle Japanese pancakes that they are taking, taking over the world. Bill, we are out of time. We are down to the last few seconds. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure. And thank you for uh, introducing the world to Australian cafe culture. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And please rate and review Ideas at the House in your favourite podcast app. You can also listen to more Sydney Opera House podcasts at sydneyoperahouse.com slash podcasts.